Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. I need this lockdown to end. If we keep losing treasured companies like Pier 1 Imports, there's going to be nothing left of this country by the time it's all said and done. (laughs) I don't think anybody under the age of 30 has ever stepped foot in a in a pier one before that's the problem nick (laughs) there's one that's been out here since before we moved out to this area and i think i've went in there once in about more than 30 years uh anyways uh hi guys it's barstool politics i'm your host uh nick mcguire joined as always by uh dr bill muck from north central college and dr phil barker from keene state college hi guys hey nick hey nick and then uh, we have with us. <laughs> Did you just spill your beer while you were ringing the bell? No, no, I kept it. I kept it in. <laughs> oh my god, that's going to be a thing going forward. Um. Anyways, we have a senior legal analyst, Professor Tom Cavanaugh, with us as well. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm great. Good to be here. I noticed uh, this week that Joe Rogan signed a deal to do his podcast exclusively for a hundred million dollars. So I'm wondering whether or not you guys have one on the. Uh, negotiating table we're holding out for 100 <laughs> because if anybody's worth 100 million dollars it's you guys yeah. at this Couldn't point we're just, we're just waiting for uh actual bar stool to uh to buy us out so i'm it. assuming okay. it'll be i mean you've got a merchandise line now what's a hundred million dollar contract right that's true yeah i'm sure it'll be a solid 50 to 100 dollar contract for each of us if that happens so you know annually <laughs> Annually. I feel um, I need to. I, I need to just get out on the table that having uh, not done this for a while, uh, the Libertarian candidate uh, started his campaign, examined his campaign, and dropped his campaign all in the span of time that I haven't been on here. While you guys didn't ask me about him, <laughs> that's you know the point. What a cactus rock is? <laughs> Do you know what a cactus stockracy uh, is? Cacistocracy? No. Isn't that a government based on crap? <laughs> yes, a government by the least suitable and least competent, which is what we're going to get next time because my guy had to drop out. <laughs> all right, did that's he, all I'll say. That's all I'm going to say about it. Did he give a specific reason other than the tweet that he put out? I, I didn't see a lot of coverage of that. You're talking about Amash, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, basically, he said that the, poly, uh, the 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 environment right now is so polarized and difficult, and the the capacity to run a campaign right now is so compromised. I mean, look at Joe Biden trying to do it. Um, that that this might not be the time. I thought he was running this time around to try and set himself up for twenty twenty four. If he could have gotten the right percentage of of votes across the country, he's guaranteed a spot on the debate stage. He's guaranteed 50 state ballot access. I don't think he obviously didn't think he could win this time around, but I wonder whether he can start from a, you know, kind of a standing start next time. 
Um, and he won't be running as probably an incumbent in the House. Mm-hmm. So it'll be much harder for him. But boy, he would not be running a cacistography. <laughs> so I feel like I should ju- I should throw in from a comparative politics standpoint that he'll also never win because of uh, Duverger's law and all sorts of other institutional factors that basically make a third party run essentially impossible in our system. Phil, I'm not saying that's friend. a good thing. I think it's a bad thing, but it is the nature of the system we have that it makes it basically impossible for a third party to have any success. Uh, my excellent friend, if I had said to you six months ago, <laughs> you were going to be locked in your house, unable to leave. Uh, wearing a mask in public everywhere you go, uh, with the prospect of complete economic meltdown across planet Earth, you'd say, TC, you've been watching too much science fiction. (laughs) So let me just say that a third party may at some point prevail. Uh, I'll just stop there. I don't mean to derail the conversation. We got to get to frenemies and and Flynn. But um well all right that was an interesting way to start <laughs> um before we get started I'll, I'll just give you the the quick rundown of of stuff uh follow us on social media uh twitter and facebook uh live shows we do on uh facebook and uh youtube every wednesday around 4 30 unless we tell you otherwise uh the podcast you can find on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, share us with your friends. We always appreciate the support. Uh, our merch line you can find on teespring.com. Look for a direct link on our social channels. Uh, beers that we try you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Oh, it's always something with you guys. Anyways, well, now we can get to the main topic. We have Tom here. We're going to talk about SCOTUS updates. Like it says in the episode title, we're going to talk about uh, Wisconsin uh, liberating their bars. Thank God they're the most patriotic state in the country by far uh, and a bunch of other things. Uh, Bill, can you give us a rundown of uh, our first topic? Absolutely. So if you've been able to pull yourself away from ESPN's documentary on Michael Jordan, and the 1990 Bulls, uh, you will have noticed that there's been some important developments at the Supreme Court. We thought we would narrow in on a handful of really fascinating cases. The court offered decisions on the unanimous jury case and the New York gun case, if you remember, bad faith mooting. Uh, they also heard cases on Trump's tax returns and faithless electors. Really, really interesting stuff there. So let's dive right in. Tom, you said we should title our look at the court Frenemies. Alito and Gorsuch. So why don't you tell us why? Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to pass over all the cases that have been argued and not yet decided, even though there's some really big ones on the horizon. The faithless faithless electors one might be at the top of the list, given the possibility of an unusual November election. I suggested frenemies because in the New York gun case and in the Louisiana jury case, Justices Alito and Gorsuch found themselves in one case, uh, in an unusual combination together, and in another, that is the jury case, in an unusual combination and uh, pretty aggressively on opposite sides. And it's that latter case, the jury case, that I think will promote some conversation. We can probably do the New York gun case pretty quickly to set the stage. The jury case is a really interesting one, even though it turns out that the central question wasn't all that controversial. But just a, a quick Uh, look at the gun case from New York. Listeners will remember that we talked about this one. Uh, We've talked about it a couple of times, actually. Uh, This involved the question of transporting a gun that was legally owned uh, and a ban by New York City uh, that effectively said you couldn't leave your house with your uh, weapon. Um, The court dismissed the case as we predicted that it might on the grounds that it was moot. Uh, That is because New York City rewrote its statute and Um, I think the best way to put it is liberalized their ordinance. They didn't just simply repeal it. They liberalized it. Um, 
Six of the justices uh, went along with uh, mooting the case. And uh, along comes Alito and Gorsuch um, writing a 31-page dissent. Thomas joined most of it, uh, saying exactly what we talked about a while ago, that this is docket manipulation was the word Alito used. And you can, uh, if you read this dissent, see his anger. He knows they've been played and he's really angry uh, at his colleagues for going along with it. Beyond the docket manipulation, he talked about the case not being moot because they didn't simply repeal the ordinance. They made it a little bit more uh, liberal and went on to say that he thinks the states are simply ignoring Heller. That is, the courts told them this is a right and they're acting like it isn't. So I just thought to to mention this case. Um, There are currently 10 gun cases with active cert petitions in front of the court. So uh, if I had to guess, it it might be that they're looking for the big one. You know, in other words, one that's not going to turn on a a fairly narrow question about, uh, we smiled when we talked about this before, can I stop at a convenience store for a Coke with my gun in the car as I drive to a gun range or something like that? But a, a really robust look at these states, and it's six of them, 44 have almost unlimited concealed carry uh, opportunity, but six that lead the nation saying that you cannot. So I think we might have a big one coming, but this was an interesting and sort of contentious uh, mooting decision. Can I just ask a quick clarifying question? When mm-hmm. you say they made it more liberal, do you mean liberal in like a, you know, like a individual liberty way or like a yes. democratic party way in, in more no, no. of like a civil liberties way? Yeah. The former, they, okay. they, uh, they essentially uh, dialed back the degree to which they were regulating transport of guns. Um, and, and this was what we said bad faith mooting looks like, right? They get all the way to the court, then they take cert, then New York City realizes it's going to lose. So they dial back the statute just to the point, I should say the ordinance, just to the point where um, the court moots, uh, well, dismisses the case on the grounds of mootness. Um, I think guns are going to be back. I think they'll take one of these 10 cases. Um, but I, I, it was, it's interesting to see Gorsuch and Alito on one side here because, and let's turn to the jury case, which is really the one that I think would be fun to talk about. Um, I'll just remind uh, listeners, this was a uh, case called Ramos. It involves a Louisiana state defendant who was charged with sexual assault. Um, he is uh, found guilty uh, by 10 of 12 jurors. Uh, in Louisiana, 10 of 12 is a sufficient number to convict. And I think most listeners are probably accustomed to the idea because they live in one of the other 48 states uh, that unanimous jury verdicts are uh, sort of the rule uh, across the country. It's gotten Phil out of many a jam. It, I, I, my guess is that it has, yes. You've got to convince um, one. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's the interesting thing. So the, the second state that, uh, uh, and, and it matters because it's really a part of the case, uh, that allowed for non-unanimous juries was Oregon. Uh, in Oregon, they would allow one dissenting vote. Louisiana uh, allows two dissenting votes. The holding in the case, which turned out not to be very controversial, it looks like essentially all nine justices thought the central question of whether or not um, there should be a unanimous vote uh, was probably yes. Mm -hmm. Um, The the really interesting part of the case turns on a discussion of precedent and when one overturns it and when one doesn't. Um, This is a 6-3 decision. Gorsuch wrote for the majority. Alito wrote for the minority. Uh, The three on that side are sort of an interesting 
uh, arrangement. It's Alito and Roberts, which might not surprise, but it's Kagan. And I'm going to come back and uh, say a word about why I think she was uh, one who joined uh, the dissent here. So the ruling uh, was simply that the Sixth Amendment guarantees a unanimous jury in all state and federal courts. Uh, I, most people probably know the Sixth Amendment doesn't say on its face uh, that a unanimous jury is a requirement, but it's long been regarded as a way of guaranteeing impartiality. Gorsuch essentially said two things in this case. The first one was um, one ought to overturn precedent where fundamental rights are at stake and the precedent is infringing on them. And here he took the position that the fundamental right to a unanimous jury verdict or an impartial jury uh, was what was at stake. And the second, oddly enough, was that the case uh, that uh, was sort of the precedent here wasn't really a precedent. Um, and, and let me explain why. It's a 1972 decision from the state of Oregon in which there were seven opinions from the nine justices they upheld Oregon's statute, uh, allowing one dissenter, but no, uh, none of the seven opinions could gather more than a couple of the justices to concur in part, dissent in part, join in part, not join in part. And Gorsuch took a sort of interesting position, and it drove Alito absolutely crazy. Uh, if you you can listen to some of the, I'll, I'll quote a couple of the, the language here. Um, but the position Gorsuch took was, it's not really precedent. If it was essentially one justice with some people joining part of the opinion and some justices not. Um, Alito begins his opinion basically saying, if this isn't precedent, what is it? Uh, he says the court, and again, I'm quoting, is deluding itself if it's not going to treat this ruling uh, as precedent. Now, Gorsuch says is, and I'll just finish, and then uh, I'm anxious to hear what you think about this, because there's a lot of really interesting angles to it. Gorsuch says that both of these states rooted their non-unanimous jury verdicts in racism. Mm -hmm. In Oregon, the Klan was rising at the time they wrote this statute. There were similar racial difficulties in Louisiana. The idea was that you could dilute black votes. The likelihood is that most juries would be predominantly white. And if you could get a jury that had one or two blacks on it, and then allow the, let's say, 10 whites or 11 whites um, to convict, you've essentially produced not an impartial jury, but a jury that is infected with racial bias. Gorsuch said, with that history and a fundamental right at stake, we got to reverse the precedent and overturn the 72 case. Alito says, not so fast. Uh, this, is, this is a significant thing when we overturn precedent. There is no egregious reasoning error in the underlying case. And before we start rushing down the road of overturning precedent, I think we ought to find uh, catastrophically bad or egregiously bad reasoning. And I don't think the history from which this comes matters. That is, there might have been good reasons. There might have been bad reasons. I'm going to look at the text of the case that is the precedent. So I'll stop there. It's a really interesting case, and I'm sure we'll come back to Kagan. Don't let's move beyond this until we talk about why Kagan would have been in, in the Alito and Roberts camp. But why don't I stop talking for a minute and, and open the, kind of open the floor? 
Who was, who did you say that I'm just trying to think I'm, I'm on uh, medication right now. So my brain's not yeah. fully functioning, but you were saying, who was it that was objecting to the, the uh, status of this as a precedent, basically saying there was not unanimous agreement in the past. So you can't Gorsuch. Really call it, that was Gorsuch. Okay. So the majority says, don't let's take this 72 Oregon. Well, the 72 United States Supreme court case involving the Oregon statute. Don't let's take this as seriously as we might take another precedent because there were seven opinions, none drew a majority of the justices. In fact, none drew even more than three. So this is a sort of precedent. Okay. And, and you can just see the steam coming out of Alito's ears as he's writing about this. You know, what do you mean? The Supreme Court decided the case. You're deluding yourself. If you, if you, this is, these are strong words from one justice to another when they become part of the printed record. This is so. Is, we've talked a lot about precedent on the podcast, and mm -hmm. and one of the critiques of this court is that they don't respect uh, respect precedent enough, right? I, mean, I think that's been the liberal critique that they're too willing to mm -hmm. overturn laws. This is really curious to see them mm -hmm. so aggressively arguing. I mean, even it sounds like even Gorsuch is saying that you only overturn precedent if there's a fundamental right mm -hmm. at stake. And this one doesn't really count because it wasn't a good you know, instance of precedent. And then Alito is making an argument like, no, precedent really, really matters. Um, what's what's your take on that? Are, are they feeling a little uh, frustrated by this critique to say that they're so anxious to overturn previous rulings? Yeah, I, my sense is that they know there's big cases coming where they're going to have to examine uh, precedents that people uh, – have a greater fidelity to might be a way to put it. So uh, Roe versus Wade is the obvious yeah. thing I think on everybody's mind. And we've talked about it before. Why is Kagan lining up with Roberts and Alito uh, on protect precedent, even where doing so seems to have an odor about it? Because she knows at some point she's going to want to preserve Roe versus Wade, despite the fact there are very few people that think it's a well-reasoned case. I mean, uh, Republican, yeah. Democrat, whatever. The outcome people may support quite vigorously, but the reasoning in the case itself, and, and in particular the science, since we're you know in a universe of science these days, of trimesters and that sort of thing, uh, this is just not the world we live in anymore. So I think Kagan joined because she wants the strongest position possible from which to say, on um, these cases that really matter to me, Roe being, I'm sure, at the top of her list, I voted along the lines of preserve precedent, even where it's an ugly thing to do it in some ways. Can, can you talk or, I mean, for somebody who's not, you know, out of a legal background, it seems like there's precedent on everything, right? But precedent matters more in some cases than other. There has to be precedent for it to get to the Supreme Court in the first place. So it feels uh, to some extent, I mean, there are courts that have ruled on this yeah. in the past, oh, if it's yeah, gotten yeah. to the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. and even if the Supreme Court hasn't ruled on it. Mm -hmm. And as we've talked before, I, I mean, you've talked before about how if you have bad precedent, why should you be bound by something that was, you know, decided poorly in the past? It, it mm -hmm. feels like to somebody who who isn't, you know, doesn't come from a constitutional law background, it feels like certain cases carry with it this heavy notion of precedent. And so mm -hmm. many other cases don't when, in fact, there have to be, you know, previous cases that deal with at least tangentially the same issue. So why is it that certain yeah. things that that sort of blanket of precedent hangs so heavy on? Yeah. Well, to start with, I guess I'd make one just very minor distinction. The precedent about which we talk now is the Supreme Court being bound by its own precedent. Right. Mm -hmm. So it is often the case that they take uh, or grant cert in a case because they have not ruled specifically on that question. 
Um, this would be an example of that. The Supreme, well, the 72 case they did, if you're Gorsuch, but they didn't rule directly on the question in a way where they got real precedent. Um, so the Supreme Court being bound by only its own precedent and only where it decides to be bound by it is sort of the the issue. Um, The second way to answer the question would be to say the court has recognized that there are some precedents that become so deeply embedded in American culture, so uh, important to the way people live their lives, that to reverse them, even if the reasoning is bad, uh, would be inappropriate. And why don't we put Roe in that category? Because that's already been the argument in some of the earlier looks at Roe. That is, even if uh, this was a poorly reasoned decision, and everybody thinks it was. Uh, and I really mean everybody. There are very few people that say the reasoning makes sense. Um, even if that's true, it has been embedded into the way Americans conduct themselves in such a way that to re- reel it in or to pull it back or to overturn it altogether would be so catastrophic a change to our society that we shouldn't do it. If, if so I, I remember- I'd say those are the precedents that get hyper protection. It's when the, the stakes ones- are high. It's when the stakes yeah. are high and it's when people know about them, you know, right. reversing some arcane uh, copyright or antitrust or tax case. No one cares about that. But from a legal standpoint, it shouldn't matter, right? Like right. if precedent matters, then precedent should matter whether it's something that nobody's ever heard of or whether it's something that affects everybody's life. Otherwise, it's not a legal question. It's a political question. Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely right. And, and I think that's going to be the question if an abortion case gets there and there is a live possibility of overturning Roe, because there are people that say it does matter whether or not society treats this case as important or it doesn't, um, whether they know about it or they don't. It's a sort of detrimental reliance argument. If we have all come to rely on uh, a precedent, and, and again, I'll stay with Roe because I think that's really what's happening in, in uh, this case, um, if we've all come to deeply rely on this, to backpedal on it is a much bigger deal than to change direction, let's say, on whether or not a thing is, can you copyright booking.com, which is another case they've got. The effect is small. The number of people who are uh, interested in it is relatively minimal. And uh, the precedent isn't a thing on which people have come to rely to live their lives. It's it's a there's a a little bit of a like a crack in the mask in some way because the supreme it, what mm-hmm. it gets at is they don't want to be political but what it reveals in some ways is that they are right they they mm-hmm. have to be in some way so or yeah. at least they, that they have a sensitivity to the idea that some of the things they adjudicate have a wider impact on people in America than others yeah and and I, Roe I, is clearly one of them. I mean, I'm thinking back all the way back to John Roberts' confirmation hearing. And he, I, when, when asked about Roe, I, if, I could be misremembering this, but I thought he made a very similar argument to say that there are certain cases, Roe being one of them, mm-hmm. that even if the logic was not sound, we have come to accept it, uh, mm-hmm. which is interesting in, in light of this case. Um, yeah. Can we talk, you, you talked about that Gorsuch makes the argument that part of the reason to overturn this is the racial argument to say mm-hmm. that, uh, that, that these individuals in, in, in creating in Oregon and Louisiana were motivated by race and racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Alito attacks him saying that it's not about motives. It's about the legal argument. Mm-hmm. Could you talk more about that? Like, let's talk, tell me more about the distinction between the motives versus the legal argument. 
You know, it's interesting. We've we've talked to this question of trying to get inside the head of legislators on a number of occasions. You know, how do you get in Trump's head to make a judgment about what he really was doing when he uh, banned immigration and that sort of thing? Um, I'm not suggesting that that's what's going on here. What what Alito said is we have a standing Supreme Court precedent. Uh, The court has adjudicated this matter. And there is not a compelling enough argument as to the law, the Constitution, um, and the plain text uh, of both to reverse it. And simply suggesting that you think what was going on in Oregon uh, and or Louisiana uh, was motivated by racial animus isn't enough Mm -hmm. uh, to, to overturn a precedent. Imagine how that might play out in Roe. You know, are are we going to try and get inside the head of doctors or or litigants? You probably heard that uh, the the lead plaintiff, Norma McCorvey, she she said she was paid. There's nothing wrong with that. People are often test plaintiffs. Uh, But when you start trying to get inside people's head, as we've said, it's a really hard thing for a court to do. So what Alito's saying is, don't let's do that. If there's a constitutional error, let's correct it. If, if there's a, a reasoning error that is significant or egregious, let's correct it. But unless it is violating those rights today, we shouldn't. And, and again, interestingly enough, Elena Kagan went along with that argument. And I think she's probably, I don't know, I don't want to suggest any of them aren't um, amenable to arguments that involve questions of race, but I think she's probably more sensitive to those maybe than Alito and or Roberts is. So Kagan's the one who you've talked about being sort of a, a defender of, well, taken up sort of civil libertarian causes in some ways, right? Am I am I right? No, the no, one no. That you... My crush was on Sotomayor. Sotomayor, okay. Is, is the Sorry. great champion okay. of uh, the Fourth Amendment these right. days. All right. Yeah. And interest, she wrote her own opinion in, in Ramos. And uh, she sort of split the difference. That is to say, she wasn't ready to join the Alito uh, I'll just call it the Alito Kagan end, uh, nor was she willing to say, as Gorsuch did, this isn't really important precedent. It only had, you know, three justices or something like that. She laid out some groundwork that, that essentially said what Alito did, but voted the other way. And that's, you know, that's a sort of interesting trick here too, right? She's, she says, look, I only want to change or overturn precedent where it's egregious and fundamental rights are at stake. And this and is, this one, is of one of them, them. Yeah. <laughs> right? And then she might be right about that. You know, the effect of this case going forward, uh, I, I, when the court took it, I think most people thought, here's, a, here's an easy, it's a 9-0, slam dunk, incorporate the Sixth Amendment as to the states and move on. I don't think anybody saw this precedent argument coming the way that it has. Um, and in fact, so significant that they've already granted cert in a case for next year to decide whether this one is retroactive. That is, can somebody who was convicted by a non-unanimous jury in 1974 or 1986 appeal on the grounds that the Ramos case says that approach violates the Sixth Amendment? I don't think that's going to be the outcome. I see you both nodding in ways that seem like you favor that approach. Uh, the, the logic, I mean, I just, I don't know that I favor, but the logic, if if it's a violation of your, in some way, civil rights or constitutional rights mm-hmm. to be convicted, then, you know, it's it's difficult to go back and enforce laws, you know, a, after the fact. But but if you're talking about constitutional rights, it seems like you should, right? <laughs> yeah, well, and we've, we, we've done that. 
you might remember that there was a, a ruling several years ago involving mandatory minimum sentences, where the court said that this sufficiently deprives trial judges of the ability to make judgments uh, that were going to strike them. And it meant resentencing people all over the country over decades and decades. You might also remember that the Obama administration uh, was sort of slapped back on uh, appointments to, um, my recollection is it was the NLRB. And as a result of that, all of the NLRB rulings were, uh, at least with that um, particular person, overturned. On the other hand, what the court has said is, where a final judgment has been entered and appeals have concluded, that is where, where the case is over, you don't reopen it. Ramos, of course, isn't in that situation because the court hasn't ruled this way. So uh, oddly enough, they will rely on precedent to say, having reversed the earlier precedent on this, we're going to apply a precedent and keep you in jail. Well, and there's interesting arguments about going back. Applying the logic retroactively is also difficult because if I'm on a jury and the 11 other people are voting to convict and I think they're guilty, but also mm -hmm. I kind of want to make a point. I can still vote in, you know, I can vote not guilty and they're still going to prison. Right. Whereas if that's I right. knew it had to be unanimous, maybe I would have voted differently. So that, yeah. that's where it's hard to kind of go back retroactively and impose sort of logic or again, intent, yeah. like what, right. knowing what right. people, what they were thinking as they voted. But yeah. now, since since the case, Louisiana had already changed their law. Right. And I think Oregon was the only one that was left, which I think is even more I, I sort of kicking ourselves that we ha we didn't see this as precedent. Right. We saw this as a simple case. Um, but in many ways, it's about one one state, one holdout. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It's well, really but, but actually, Bill, and, and here's just one more interesting thing to throw in. It turns out it's not. That is to say there was a cluster of states. I want to say it was 12 or 13 states that joined in amicus briefs uh, on the side of Louisiana. That is, let's preserve the precedent. And everybody understood when you look at the, the list of the Texas, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi. These are all states that were probably contemplating if the Supreme Court ruled against Ramos, moving backwards relative to the sixth hmm. and doing what Oregon has done. Interesting. So yeah. to go, go to, okay. So Texas, Phil, why, why is it always Texas? Um, <laughs> okay. That's, that's really surprising that mm -hmm. the, you think that there would have been states that would have wanted to lower the bar to, uh -huh. to 11 or 10. Now they don't say in their amicus brief, if, if Ramos loses, we're going to a, uh, you know, nine, to, yeah. whatever, nine to three, but uh, it, it, the common theme in these amicus briefs is that they see room to change their own state criminal law and have non-unanimous juries. And, you know, maybe we should say is, because there might be listeners saying to themselves, is there a non-racial reason for non-unanimous criminal jury verdicts? And I think the answer is that there are. Yeah. Uh, uh, convincing 12 people to a degree of beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, I'll just, I'll just say this, O.J. Simpson, mm -hmm. it is very difficult for a prosecutor uh, to reach this stage. And in an era where you have people that say they're going to engage in jury nullification, that is, they may not, in let's say a drug case, apply the law, giving a, a prosecutor uh, a, an opportunity to persuade the overwhelming majority, 95% of the jurors, now there's, this is not a, an implausible argument, it seems to me. I, I don't support it. But I think states that say this 
shouldn't be put into a category of, well, they're all, you know, this is racism. Not sure that it's always that. I know we need to move on for beers, but Tom, could you give us just a, a tiny preview of the the faithless electors? So maybe kind of wet the yeah. whistle for because this, I mean, I, I, the Trump tech case is interesting, and I think it's important. But but this faithless electors one is really yeah. really fun. Yeah, I think the two cases that are coming up that are going to be great are Little Sisters, which goes back to the Affordable Care Act and the question of compelling a Catholic uh, entity to provide contraception was argued right at the end of the term. So it's likely to be one of the couple or three very last things uh, the court decides. The faithless electors case involves uh, an interesting question, and it is simply this. Uh, can a state elector, after the presidential uh, election has been completed, vote for somebody other than the person who carried that state's election? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it involves a couple of states where people try to do it. Colorado is one of them. Um, and I feel like the others out on the West Coast, uh, I, I might be wrong about this, maybe Washington State. Uh, in both like cases, yeah. Yeah, in both cases, an elector said, well, I'm going to vote for the person who the state elected, that is, who won the election in that state. Um, and uh, people might be saying, well, this is the simplest thing in the world, right? Uh, these electors are told who to vote for. They're bound to do it. Uh, and uh, in fact, in both of those cases, ultimately, uh, it ended up being that way. One was removed, is my recollection, uh, and the other, the others buckled under. Uh, it's it's more complicated than that, and and there is some history and some precedent to suggest that the electors were intended to be uh, a sort of um, what's the right word, maturing influence. Yeah. So that if the majority made a terrible judgment, they could appear at the college, uh, 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 the electoral college, and cast their votes differently. I, to be to be honest, I'd be shocked if the court said it's appropriate for an elector in a state that has told them they're bound uh, uh, to change their vote. You want to talk about chaos? Um, totally. Somebody I, I, with, can you? I, I mean, I, we live three of us in the bluest state. Uh, you know, uh, almost in America. Um, could you imagine electors in Illinois where there's going to be a landslide? You don't even need to know what name is on the Democratic ballot. It's going to be a landslide. Uh, somehow deciding they're going to vote for the Republican, which would be in this case, if that turns out to be the, the ruling appropriate. So it's going to be a really cool one. But for me, the whole the what's so fast. I spent a lot of the afternoon thinking about this. Was this argument of originalism right. and textualism, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you've got these conservative justices who say you always go back to what the founders intended, mm-hmm. and they intended to give these electors the ability to make that choice. So it's uh-huh. yeah, again, it, yeah, you're right. Chaos. I don't to I avoid a cacistocracy. <laughs> <laughs> so, Phil, let me just say this: having you said no third party's ever going to win. I see a grand and important potential American development. And that is in an election that involves uh, the potential cacistocracy that we're going to get with either a Biden or a Trump presidency, a guy like Justin Amash running and the elector saying, false, I'm not voting for the guy who won. I'm voting for the guy who is capable, competent and suitable. Which is, to Bill's point, exactly what the Electoral College is supposed to do. For sure. I mean, there's really interesting, uh, I mean, whichever way you go, there's really interesting sort of implications for democracy here. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you say that, 
you have you have no choice in this. You have to vote the way the state. Then then the the electoral college is like a moot institution anyway. Why right. do we even have people who do this? Just yeah. whatever whoever the votes go, that's who gets the like. Get rid of this outdated thing. But if you do say like if you do go back and say that people should be able to vote their conscience, then uh, you know that that's the way it was intended. But also then people don't have to follow the way the state voted democratically. I mean, there's there's all sorts of uh, stuff that well, kind of, that gets but, brought up in this. But the electoral college still does distribute in a way that a that a general popular vote wouldn't. I mean, in other words, if we yes. if we say the electors are bound by their states, you still do protect Nebraska and Ohio and places like that as a part of a process that doesn't simply get overwhelmed by New York, California. But, uh, in Illinois, but mm-hmm. the 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 nonsense of you're not actually electing Joe Biden, you're electing you know Bob Smith, who is an yeah. elector for Joe Biden, and yeah. all of that that we still go through with all of that is like it becomes it, it becomes just a, a silly you know I, I mean maybe it's tra- oh, just it's tradition at that point. I guess. That's based on norms. <laughs> I'm sorry, Nick. I just had to get a little bit on it because I think it's a really interesting question. So, listen. No, I think it's great. Yeah, we'll come back. Your right been wedded. Mm-hmm. Let's all right, let's uh, let's talk beer. Tom, you want to start yeah. us off? Oh my gosh, I did curbside pickup today at a brewery in Elk Grove Village called Microphone, M I K E R Phone. Um, they're sort of a, a music outlet, and uh, the beer I brought back from there is called Crush, Crush, Crush. Mm. Um, it's a milkshake IPA with orange peel, vanilla. And citra hops. So all the Reinheitsgebot beer purists are going to say this is evil. But I'm going to just tell you something. It's like an alcoholic dreamsicle. It's absolutely <laughs> delicious. So uh, it's a 4.6 on Untapped for me. Wow! Wow! Really, right. really, really good. Really liking it. Yeah. yeah. So Phil, you're on you're on medication today. So no beer for you, right? Yeah, I'm. I'm I had a, a nice. Uh, taste of Imitrex before I came on. So it gives me a nice heady feeling, but uh, not a whole lot of the pleasure that you get out of a beer. So <laughs> this is this is the right choice. Nick, what do you enjoy? Would you have another, Phil? I would. <laughs> if necessary, I would. <laughs> they don't make uh, you feel bad. I should throw that in. It's not a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am having a, mud, uh, having a mud puppy porter from uh, uh, Central Waters Brewing, which is out of Amherst, Wisconsin. That's what it looks like right there um you know being that we're uh, we're going to be talking about wisconsin again the most patriotic uh state in the country at this point um it was it was different um some of the ones that that tom has brought on have been fantastic this one is uh a little bit more somewhere in the middle uh it's has kind of light chocolatey notes but it's got pretty substantial char to it um and a, and a fairly robust maltiness as well um so I think the char kind of overpowers the sweetness, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It just might be a, a little, a little too much one way than the other. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't mind it though. Like at, at this point, I'm, I, I love porters. So put anything in front of me and I'll drink it. <laughs> good stuff, good stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm having a Going Places IPA. Uh, it is from Hopwell Brewing out of Chicago, um, and this was this was really really good. So they describe it as an IPA for those on the up and up, and, and I like that. It's, <laughs> it's true. It's got all the good citrusy stuff, lots of uh, floral and citrus flavor in there, but it has the pininess to it. It kind of has a piney finish at the end, and I like that. I like you know I like that you get citrusy, but you still get that kind of IPA pine at the end. So. 
Um, this is one of the, you know, we have lots of IPAs and most of them are pretty standard. I, this one's, this one's really good. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, if I get coronavirus tomorrow and die, it's going to be worth it to have taught you piney and to have Nick say it had robustness and char to it. I just, I'll die a success. Right. Um, actually, we had a, a question come in on uh, a Facebook, uh, Colin Hobbs, who is a, a longtime listener. Uh, it's his 21st birthday on the 27th. Hey, happy birthday, Colin. Do we have any good beer recommendations for him? Wow. From <laughs> Illinois? No, he's from New Hampshire. He's 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 one of my students, so he's from oh, New Hampshire or this area. Oh man, he yeah, should go to travel your tree house. Come you to go to tree. You gotta yeah, go to treehouse. Tree gotta be treehouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, treehouse is special. It really is spectacular. Yeah, anything from them you'll you'll enjoy. So anything. Try that. Um, if you guys want to check out the beers that we have on the podcast, like I mentioned in the beginning, uh, you can follow us on Untapped, which you can download on iOS or Android. Just search uh, search for uh, Barstool Politics on there. All right, time for speed round. Yes, sir. So, all right, a few weeks back, we discussed the Michael Flynn case. As a reminder, the Justice Department moved to drop charges against President Trump's former national security advisor. You who were pretty okay with that, Bill, right? What's that? You were pretty okay with that decision, right? I'm, I'm still lathered up about this, Nick, but I'm going to try to stay focused. <laughs> <laughs> oh, am I going pr- to provoke my friend, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> who had previously pled guilty to those very charges. Since then, the judge, uh, the judge presiding over the case, U.S. District Judge Emmett Sullivan, has paused the case to hear from outside groups and appointed former New York federal judge John Gleason to argue against the Justice Department's request to undo Flynn's charges. As I understand it, it's a rather extraordinarily rare for the DOJ to move to dismiss a case after the defendant has pled guilty. The development raises all sorts of complicated legal questions. Most importantly, what happens next? It also puts Judge Sullivan in the difficult spot of trying to disentangle the DOJ's DOJ's shifting position on the Flynn case. Tom, I'm guessing that judges don't enjoy being put in this position. Now, if you were the judge in this case, how would you balance the desire of the Justice Department with your interest in not letting the judiciary judiciary becoming a pawn in the political game? I mean, is that even possible? In other words, as the Supreme Court once noted, how do you ensure that the waters of justice are not polluted? God. Man, that. I love <laughs> I love clean judicial water for sure. Um <laughs> Look, uh, Emmett Sullivan is a Reagan appointee. He's been on the bench for a long, long time. Um, he's deeply experienced and I think widely respected. So I, I mean, one thing I'd say is this is not somebody um, who's going to get pushed around. Um, that said, uh, th- there's really two really interesting legal issues here. The first is this invitation to third parties um, essentially to argue on behalf of a party that's not there. And and what I mean by that is the Justice Department has said they're going to dismiss the case. So here you have the unusual uh, scenario of the Department of Justice, the prosecutors being on the same side uh, of the question as the defense. And that's essentially what Sullivan's saying here. I'm not getting an argument on the other side of this case because both sides agree uh, as to the, uh, the dismissal. The second, though, and I think it's not insignificant. We can, let's talk a little bit about both. But the second issue is what caused this plea and what uh, what did the FBI do to get us to a point where a plea bargain was entered? Because I, that, that's part of what's happening here. And I think it's important. So on the ruling, it's pretty complicated. Um, and, and it's complicated for two reasons. 
The first is that generally speaking, the courts have said prosecutors have almost absolute discretion relative to who they charge, what they charge, how far they pursue a case, um, and whether they pursue it at all. Uh, it's not an uncontroversial thing, and I think you can all uh, imagine why. When you say the prosecutors uh, can decide, do we charge Phil or not? Do we charge Bill or not? Um, and that's putting an enormous amount of power in the hands of a person that is not politically, um, well, generally not uh, elected, and, and certainly generally not sensitive to political questions. Um, but we defer to that almost all the time. The twist in this case is that you've got a plea. And uh, uh, the, the problem is that the parties agree, that is the defense and the prosecution, that the plea is illegitimate for two reasons. The first is what the FBI did to get it. And the second is that if there's no underlying crime about which the lie was told, then the lie itself isn't a crime. So uh, uh, let me just I'll pause there on the ruling thing. This is not, and I just... Uh, it, it's, we should all say this out loud. This is not a perjury case. Perjury is a particular thing. It is lying in the course of a, a, a formal judicial proceeding. So, you know, I heard uh, former President Obama describing this as letting him get away with perjury. Uh, I, I, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt and think he misspoke, but he's a lawyer. He knows perfectly well this isn't a perjury case. Um, this is based on a very narrow sort of thing uh, of deceiving the FBI. And the FBI agreed at the time that he wasn't even trying to be deceptive. So first question, can a judge invite non-parties to intervene in a case to argue a side he thinks isn't being well represented in the case? Uh, and, I, and I throw that out for your thoughts. Um, I'm, I'm, my own view is I think the answer is no. I don't know what happens then, right? So let's say this this uh, Gleason that they've appointed mm -hmm. makes a hell of a case, right? He argues the position that's not being argued. What do you do with that? What if it's it's convincing and compelling? Um, you you still have a, a, a the prosecution doesn't want to prosecute him. Mm -hmm. The defendant doesn't want. I I, I just. You know, I, I tend to think that I mean, I, I tipped my hand a couple of weeks ago that, you know, the way that Barr has handled this is is garbage. But I don't know that Sullivan can do anything here to change that, maybe other than, you know, shame the DOJ a little bit. But there's there's nothing. Right? I mean, I, I don't know what the point of all this is. Well, no, no, he could do something. And, and while we give wide discretion to prosecutors, you can't dismiss a charge without the judge's permission. So theoretically, he could withhold that permission and say, I am going to continue to treat this as a case in which a defendant has pleaded guilty and we're moving on to the sentencing stage. He could do that. Absolutely. Hmm. But yeah. that, I mean, that puts him in a difficult position as well, because the the I mean, in my mind, I think about like the uh, if you're trying to avoid any sense of impropriety, if I'm a judge and you come in and try to dismiss a charge against a, you know, whatever, against a, 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 a person who's been accused. And I appoint Bill to come in and argue the other side. Right. And then I say, yep, Bill convinced me. The guy that I chose to argue the other side convinced me. Even if that's accurate, even if the whole thing is shady as hell mm -hmm. and the opposite argument is clear and convincing, it's, mm -hmm. it, there's all sorts of, you know, just the, the colors of potential colors of impropriety or it seems like it's a hard thing to get out of. So even even yeah. if it is shitty, mm -hmm. shitty, the logic behind it, and 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 he should face uh, charges. 
that's it, a it's a I don't know. It's a pretty big uh, quagmire to try to wiggle your way out of. I think. Yeah, I, I can't I can't imagine a scenario where he says, "I reject the Department of Justice's recommendation to withdraw the plea and dismiss the case." It, it, I, I just I can't imagine it for for exactly the reason you're arguing, Phil. Um, nobody who is a party, an actual party to the lawsuit, wants that to happen. And I just want you to think about what the world looks like if we empower trial court judges in any case involving criminal claims to invite third parties to offer opinions about them. We do this at the appellate level. We just talked about all those amicus briefs. We don't do it at the trial level. This is a very unusual thing. What's the what's his logic or strategy? Is he trying to is it just to basically make a point that I don't think this should be as open and shut as this? Is he trying to set this up for something else that might come afterwards? Like, well, what's the what's he hoping to accomplish? I, nothing will come afterwards. That is, if if ultimately the plea is withdrawn and the charges are dismissed, that's not an appealable thing. So it's not like he's setting this up to send it on to an appellate court. Um, My sense is that he thinks something has happened here that is inappropriate and that the way to demonstrate, oddly enough, having talked about bias, the way to demonstrate even-handedness is to try and get the other side's argument into court. Um, Even though I've never met, I, I haven't met anybody that thinks his ultimate ruling is likely to be, I'm going to reject the Department of Justice's recommendation and move forward. Let's just add two things. Gleason um, has been very critical of Michael Flynn. So whatever you think of Flynn, uh, let's bear in mind that the guy that's going to argue the other side, um, not that this is inappropriate, but but he is an advocate against Flynn. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the second thing is that a career prosecutor, that gets to be a phrase everybody sort of loves, you know, a thousand career prosecutors signed off on or whatever. It's a career prosecutor that reviewed this matter and said, we should dismiss this case. It was not Bill Barr. It was somebody appointed by Bill Barr, a non-political appointee and a career prosecutor. And what he said, just to, I know we're past the speed round, but two minutes on FBI, uh, something like 28% of all plea bargains are entered by people who are innocent. I mean, I just want that to settle in for a minute. And the reason it's enter uh, that many enter them is that the power of the government to coerce a plea from you is so overwhelming and so frightening uh, that that to suggest that an innocent guy and I've had ten people say that well why would he plead if he was innocent answer the FBI can charge st- well the FBI and the DOJ they can charge stack one act multiple crimes multiple sentences they can punitively sentence. So when you see on television somebody say, plead now, and it's easy, you go to court with this, and we're, we're looking for life in prison. Absolutely can do that. You can threaten your family, and they did it here. Absolutely, somebody uh, said, we've already bankrupted you, and we're going to bankrupt you know, your son. Think about that for a minute. Is anybody in this podcast not prepared to say, if my son was threatened by the FBI with bankruptcy, if I don't plead guilty, I'd do it? My son has no net worth, so that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) But just even one more. They're allowed to lie. We've got a witness that can put you at the murder scene as you're sitting in the interrogation room. So I just want to get us rid of this idea that only guilty people plead guilty. Mm. And and let's start with the idea that it doesn't, that's not the case. 
But I will say one quick pushback. I don't know if we got to move on, but no, please, nobody yeah. other than Michael Flynn would get this deal, right? I think you're you're right, Tom. There are a lot of people that the feds go after. Nobody other than Michael Flynn is getting a situation where the DOJ is changing their plea um, after the individual has pled guilty, right? I think that's that's kind of what rubs me the wrong I, way. I suspect that that's absolutely true. On the other hand, nobody else was made a high-profile defendant in a case that had very modest even if everything the FBI says is true, very modest wrongdoing in the hope that they could get the president or somebody else. It, uh, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Is this something that uh, a year down the road, the DOJ can pick up and bring charges again? Depends. I, my understanding is that they're asking to dismiss with prejudice. When a case is dismissed with, uh, with prejudice, it is dead. It is as though uh, jeopardy has applied. You can never resurrect it. And the order the judge will have to sign, and this is why a judge has to give permission to do it, the order the judge will sign will either say with prejudice or without. So is that maybe mm-hmm. his his logic for uh, having an argument made against it so that he can dismiss it, but without prejudice, so that it is open for uh, somebody to return to this in the future? If you know, he really it's, thinks it's fishy, that would be a way potentially yeah, to do that. it's a really interesting idea, Phil. The problem is I don't think DOJ and defense counsel will go for that. They've they've agreed that this should be dismissed with prejudice. It should not be able to be resurrected. Um, uh, Could he do that? Absolutely. Will he do it? I'd put it in the same category of things you just a minute ago said are improbable. And I think for all the same reasons, it it puts him in a position that is really difficult. Uh, So yeah, I just will close this. Well, here's how we can close it. You remember, uh, I think a a long time ago, I had this line that uh, a lawyer should just shut his mouth. And it was with respect to Rudy Giuliani, who has been conspicuously absent from the American conversation <laughs> recently. Let me just uh, add a corollary to it. A, a client should shut their mouth. I'm just telling you, you want some free legal advice? When the when government is on the other side of the table, shut your mouth if you don't have a lawyer there. Because that's the rest of this story, that the interrogation was done without a lawyer and in a sort of casual, we're just having a conversation way, and they lead him into a, a trap, a perjury trap. Anyway, I'll stop on it, but it's a really interesting thing. Yeah. Nick, you want to jump in or you want to move to Wisconsin? Yeah, we got to move on. Go ahead. All right. So let's go to Wisconsin. So last Wednesday, the Wisconsin Supreme Court struck down the state stay-at-home order, which had the effect of immediately lifting restrictions on all business and gatherings. The Tavern League of Wisconsin posted on Facebook shortly after the ruling that you could open immediately. It didn't take long for thirsty Wisconsinites to find their favorite local watering hole, and it appears they were so excited they all forgot to wear their mask. Uh, Governor Evers commented, quote, we're in the Wild West and there are no restrictions at all across the state of Wisconsin. So at this point in time, there's nothing that's compelling people to do anything other than having chaos here. Unquote. Why would he say that? <laughs> so once again, my home state of Wisconsin is the perfect example of how politics are not supposed to work. Yet while Wisconsin elected uh, has elected to embrace the Wild West strategy, there are important questions about the power of governors to declare an emergency and how you determine when an emergency is no longer an emergency. Phil, I'm pretty sure I saw a picture of you at one of those Wisconsin bars. What's your sense of how Wisconsin has handled this and how states should handle it moving forward? So somehow I've looked through this outline multiple times, and it was only just now that I saw the picture that you had put on it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, in which Bill has photoshopped me into a Wisconsin bar. But uh, um, I'm going to need that, by the way. (laughs) Wearing a Packer jersey. Uh Yes. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot worse that I could do than wearing a Packers Jersey. So, um, uh, uh, 
Yeah. So I, I mean, so I haven't, I haven't read that. I'd be interested to hear in a second, Tom, if you've had a chance to look at the, the legal argument. I mean, this seems like a perfect example of where there are two different ways of talking about this from a legal perspective, the idea about the issues of separation of powers, they seem like legitimate legal issues. They're issues that have been brought up in New Hampshire here, where we have a Republican governor and a Democratic legislature over how much power the governor has to basically single-handedly allocate you know, funds that have been set aside for, for coronavirus. So mm-hmm. th- there's a legal question that I think is valid about where does the, you know, are there, does the governor have to go through the legislature to approve these limits on, on the ability of people to move or to function in society and, and all of that. So there's that part of it, which exists in this kind of hypothetical world in which we're all sort of sane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you, but you drop that into the world we currently live in where you, where you have this sort of extreme partisanship. And we talked about, you know, the issue last week, or I guess it was two weeks ago when we talked about the idea of freedom and how for so many people, freedom has just become the idea that I can just tell, you no, like it, freedom has become this sense of screw you. Right. Which is, which is a different you know, notion of it. And that's where it feels like we have the politics of this, the sort of Republican democratic and the, the really sort of anti-partisan it's not that I'm proud to be a Republican. It's screw you Democrats or it's screw you Republicans that comes into play. And so there are legal issues. And then there are these sort of common sense ideas about, you know, we need to deal with the pandemic. Let's talk about proper ways to do it or the proper ways to do that and balance that against civil rights. It doesn't feel like that is what's happening. It feels like the world of politics has been infused into all of these legal issues in a way mm-hmm that makes it difficult to actually get to the, you know, the heart of the issues involved. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I feel like one feeds into the other. I, I feel like the fact that as much as governors, especially you look at the dichotomy between Wisconsin and Illinois, uh, with Illinois kind of uh, leading the, the pack in terms of borderline draconian measures to keep people in place for an indeterminate amount of time with indeterminate parameters around it um, that seem, uh, we were talking before we started recording, uh, Governor Pritzker all of a sudden decided to allow uh, restaurants to uh, open for outdoor seating on June 1st, which would be theoretically the the earliest going into the third of five stages of, of reopening the state economy. Prior to that, he had said that Chicago and the surrounding suburbs, uh, one of the regions in the state, weren't going to meet the uh, the um, uh, medical standards necessary to to move forward into the next phase to, to open more things while the rest of the state was going to be allowed to open. But in a lot of these stories, you see he's talking with the state restaurant association and different political groups that seem to suggest that the decisions that are being made, while a lot of it is being framed around dealing with the pandemic, these last minute changes are clear, not clearly, but are seem to me blatant political and economic decisions more than anything. And I think that the bla- uh, backlash that you see, the political backlash that you see from the wider population isn't necessarily due to the overarching um, politicization in the country, but more in this particular moment, it's become... Um, just kind of hyper hyper realized, and and when you see something like that, these elements kind of come to the forefront more than anything. I think you saw a lot of that, especially with the decisions coming down uh, from the, the Wisconsin Supreme Court with the election and everything else that's kind of transpired over uh, the past few months. That I I do think that there is kind of a, a screw you element to it, but it's not necessarily based in 
just the 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 overarching partisan atmosphere that we've seen kind of develop over the past three plus years. Well, all these all the people from Illinois are driving to Wisconsin to go spend their money too. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the other thing, right? Tom, you were really engaged by this issue. Why don't, why don't you go next? Yeah, one quick answer to Phil. As I understand it, one of the central issues in the uh, uh, the opinion is that this uh, order was framed in a way that would allow it to be extended indefinitely. Mm-hmm. So while there was a lot of conversation about, well, my God, it's going to expire May 26th. Why intervene now? The answer is that you could simply, and this is this wasn't the governor, actually. It was their uh, secretary of the Department of uh, Health Services or something like that that you could just simply forever, an unelected, unconfirmed uh, person, shut down the entire state. Um, I, what engages me about this is uh, I, I'm seeking a definition for the word emergency that's going to have meaning in the context of what I think are going to be lots of lawsuits that say we have to reopen. I'm not making an argument either way as much as saying um, Governors aren't monarchs any more than our president is. And, and, you know, having worked very hard to produce a federal government where the president has limited powers and checks and balances and co-equal branches and that sort of thing. You know, the, the flip side is that we produce state governments where we've given these police powers to governors that appear to have very few limits until courts intervene and say there are some. And, and it feels to me like one of those limits is going to have to be defining when does an emergency end? Correct. Um, you know, th- there, there has to be uh, consistency and those sorts of things in these governor's actions. And, you know, in some senses there are, but boy, we're going to have to have a court step in and say, this is an emergency. It lasts this long. And here's where a legislative body that is elected has a right to voice its opinion. Um, I think there's some really fun parallels to the post 9-11 world. And there yeah. there are differences, but also similarities where yeah, after yeah. 9-11, the country lived in a, a perpetual state of emergency. Mm-hmm. And there were there were real costs and real mm-hmm. uh, implications for citizens that, that went on for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And now we've kind of flipped it. Or I should say the partisanship has flipped so yeah. that yeah, yeah. now you've got Republicans saying this isn't an emergency. Whereas after 9-11, that was the argument that 9-11 was a real emergency. Terrorism mm-hmm. is a terror, you know, is, is a, we have to continue. It's a threat. And, and I think it's, it's ill-defined, right? We don't know mm-hmm. what it means. We mm-hmm. see that some people understand a pandemic as a, as a real threat. Others understand terrorism, but there's no, and, and after 9-11, it took the courts to intervene mm-hmm. to say the Bush administration went too far. Yeah. It took a long time for that to happen, yeah. but I'm guessing, there's got to be a similar dynamic here, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. There's a bevy of lawsuits across the country brought by individuals, small businesses, large businesses, churches, all of which are challenging the question of um, indefinite gubernatorial power to shut down whatever it is they do. You can't have gatherings large enough to have church. You can't open a restaurant. I'll tell you that I think one of the first things courts are going to say is the distinction between essential and non-essential is meaningless. Mm-hmm. And and I'd make an argument that that ought to be a thing they do. The idea that you tell somebody who owns, let's say, a nail salon that they and their business are non-essential, but the dollar store down the street is, or that the liquor store and the pot dispensary are essential, but some other business isn't, uh, this this puts a level of discretion into uh, a, a governor's hands that I think is completely indefensible. 
on, on, on the basis of any state or federal constitution. You can't make those sorts of judgments about people and the things they do. It, it won't. Oh, go ahead. No, it, it feels like a conversation that we will have to, we should, I don't know. I don't have confidence that we will, but after this there, you don't want the idea of when and what emergency is to be a mushy subjective thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And if States were smart, they would come up with legislation that clearly defined what an emergency is when it can be implemented and all of that. I don't have much faith that that will actually happen, but mm-hmm. you know, what's indispensable higher education. You notice the transition. <laughs> Nick, here we go. You're getting good right. at that. This week, a number of colleges, college presidents met with Vice President Pence to discuss challenges they face trying to open this fall. The president spoke about the need to be able to do more testing for the coronavirus, but the presidents also, college presidents, also said they need to know their college wouldn't get sued if anyone got sick, which is almost inevitable. This raises an important question of whether Congress should provide a liability shield for colleges and or businesses that reopen. Colleges in seeking that protection from Pence and from the Senate committee this week, again, aren't alone. Manufacturers and business groups like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce have been pushing uh, to be freed, at least temporarily during the pandemic, from being held liable if workers, customers or others get sick on their property. Tom, this is also a complicated legal issue that impacts our institutions of higher education directly. So what's your sense of the legal issues at play here? Yeah. Well, let's start with the political one, because here you've got sort of frenemies again. Um, The House has voted a three plus trillion dollar additional aid package. And the Senate has said we're not going to talk about that uh, unless a couple of things come up, one of which is immunity for businesses. And and I think they're including in that colleges that open. Um, So they have framed this as an essential issue in terms of moving forward with aid. Let's start by saying this is not a thing that is uncommon, unusual, or even necessarily controversial. A number of states have already immunized uh, frontline healthcare workers, for example, uh, from liability when they test or when they treat. Um, A number of states have moved, at least legislatively, none have done it fully yet, to insulate some of their businesses uh, from lawsuits. Um, I, I was doing a little bit of looking around and I found a whole bunch of lawyer ads, uh, you know, encouraging people to see them if a loved one has contracted the disease, died of the disease, or one firm said, if you think you may have been exposed. So (laughs) I I guess I just want to say that the idea that plaintiff attorneys are going to try and capitalize on this, let's just treat that as a given. So the question is, Who's going to open their business, uh, which is already operating on a tightrope uh, and, and in a context where they may or may not get insurance coverage uh, for a pandemic, and we can come back to why, uh, knowing that this could uh, not just close their business, but put their personal assets at risk. Lots of people that operate small businesses do that as a sole proprietor. It's, it's their assets. It's their checking account. And it's not even fair to say that if they have incorporated, they're absolutely protected. So the risk here is enormous for small business. And I think it's also enormous for colleges and universities. I'm sure you can hear me building up to, I think Congress should do this. Uh, And I say this as a lawyer who recognizes the value of uh, the litigation process for getting after the truth. But boy, we cannot restart the economy with lots and lots of people saying, if I'm going to be sued out of existence, 
that's just as bad as uh, dying of the coronavirus, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, dying economically of the coronavirus. So uh, the question I have, and, and I guess this kind of goes back to, to your tangentially, to your point about 9-11, uh, Bill, with these these statements and, and statutes and regulations that get put in place, especially in terms of liability concerns, uh, unemployment benefits, uh, the length that you're able to stay on unemployment. Um, when talking about when these things get put in place, my question is, how do you end up winding that down from a federal level once they're in place? Because that seems like a significantly more complicated process to go through, especially from a political standpoint, to get uh, a, a majority of Congress to to wind a lot, a lot of these efforts down if it's not politically advantageous for them or if the major lobbies think that it's not advantageous for them, especially from an economic standpoint after this is all said and done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, boy, that's a great question. I, I think maybe one answer is um, it is possible to craft the legislation in such a way that it is tied specifically to coronavirus. So a complaint in a civil tort suit would have to allege that one has um, been exposed to and therefore contracted a particular disease. And because of the negligent behavior of a college or a business, that exposure took place. If the disease is defined carefully, then the statute will never extend further than protection from liability for exposure to that disease. So for, you know, just as a, for example, if a restaurant uh, somebody's exposed to tuberculosis uh, or uh, AIDS because of uh, bodily fluids or something like that. If the statute says coronavirus is the thing we're insulating you from, that would be the limit that would be set. And I don't know if we ever want to dial that back. Um, you might be right that there's a good reason to at some point in the future. But I guess the second thing the statute would say is reasonable conduct relative to reopening includes all of the following things distancing people, requiring masks, exercising reasonable care that the number of people in your establishment is limited to 50% or whatever. No liability shield is absolute. So that a Wisconsin bar that allows people to stand shoulder to shoulder without masks, uh, you know, yucking it up and that sort of thing. And then somebody says, listen, I, I contracted coronavirus in that bar. Well, we Bill used a picture of a bar uh, to, to put Phil's face on one of them. The mm -hmm. evidence that you were in it and exposed, if one of your faces is that one, is, is pretty overwhelming. Mm -hmm. um, I don't mean to say that people are always going to win. And maybe that's one thing we should say about this. I know the bell rang. People sue for nuisance value all the time. And if you've been on the highway in Illinois and seen all these signs for these people that, uh, you know, you see the two grinning lawyers ever been in a truck accident or they don't try lawsuits. I'm not sure any of these guys have ever tried a case. What they want to do is pull in a plaintiff, file a lawsuit and get nuisance value, which is whatever the defendant decides is less than they'd have to spend to defend the lawsuit. Mm -hmm. So the real victim here then, of course, is the person, not the insurance company necessarily, but the small business person who's dragged through all of this. Mm -hmm. So a plaintiff attorney can get nuisance value for some crummy lawsuit, you know, against a company that really tried. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just want to throw one quick thing out there, though. The question is what we're going to trade to get this. Is it reasonable, for example, for Congress to say that businesses have to use cameras to surveil their employees 
to be sure that they are social distancing. Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing this already. Um, that is, at least one company has announced we used to use these cameras for one purpose. Now we've got a way to use them to both take your temperature in the workplace and make judgments about whether you're too close to your uh, coworkers. There's a town that's using drones to fly over um, groups to say, don't, you know, cluster or something like that. So one worry I have is if this isn't just for the money, we're going to release the money, we're going to give some liability protection. Um, boy, if, it's, if we continue to erode privacy, I think that's going to be a problem. And, and well, I could imagine that being the case. You can easily see as a, a scenario where businesses say that you have to download a specific contact tracing app to prove right, right beyond a shadow of a doubt that yep. you didn't get it here. Without yep. that, there is there there's no case to be had if you right. do somehow become infected, mm -hmm. which is given you see more and more stories come out every day about mm -hmm. the the nefarious nature uh at least on a, a a global level of a lot of these apps and the the um the development of them and the surveillance state that's coming out of it in a lot of different countries um so that's that's what worries me i absolutely think there needs to be some sort of protection it just scares me that this is something that we don't end up coming back from very mm -hmm. easily well in my view we need a separate uh, uh comprehensive federal law on privacy we, we've we've gone too far down the technology road to ignore the idea that the variety of ways that public and private entities can watch us isn't important anymore. Um, maybe there needs to be a public debate about whether or not I have to. Un, uh, you know, what if, what if what if our college president says it is a condition of your further employment at North Central College that you download an app? Well, I, I got to tell you something. I'm not sure I'm I'm prepared to do that. Let's go on and Which say that's happening at a lot of factories, right? There, you know, they're they're beeping when they get too close. This is just part of the deal, yeah. right? And, and I know yeah. there's a difference between a college campus and a factory, but yes, this is becoming mandatory for a lot of institutions. And the question is whether the law should protect us from employers who want that to be mandatory. And I, I recognize there's a real debate here. I'm, I'm not minimizing the risks. But, but I guess I'm saying let's, let's not minimize the privacy intrusions that go along with so many of these, uh, these sorts of things. Listen, we passed uh, a Privacy Act relative to your health information about 10 years ago. Uh, so these HIPAA uh, regulations, for example, don't let people ask you questions about your health. So what happens when your employer says to you, you know what? Those cameras that have been watching you every day say that you have a slight fever. Have you been tested for coronavirus? Well, the answer under HIPAA would be, you can't even ask me the question. Mm -hmm. And if they go on and say, have you tested positive? Clearly the answer is under HIPAA. I don't have to tell you that. So we'd have to rewrite federal law to allow companies to ask people, have they been tested? What were the results? And, the, and to act on those results. Mm-hmm. Not an emergency. <laughs> you can do anything. <laughs> well, I All don't right, know. I, you know, does the Americans with Disabilities Act bow to gubernatorial uh, fiat because we have an emergency? I'm not so sure it does. No, I don't think so either. We yeah. talk about broad police powers for governors, but uh, uh, those police powers stop where enumerated rights start. And, yeah. and, and that's the question that's going to be in front of courts 
uh, a lot in the next, I don't know, two, three, four months. Anyway, mm-hmm. all right. So, sure. so Nick, this is impressive. We've made it a long way into the podcast without mentioning Trump, really. So this is this is good. <laughs> but we we got to go because he's, he's taking medicine. So on Monday, President Trump's uh, announced that he had ta- he has been taking hydro oh, hydrochloroquine. hydrochloroquine. So hard it's like to trying say. to say cacistography, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> say that three drug. times fast. Hydrochloric. Uh, so the Food and Drug Administration warned this could cause serious heart problems for coronavirus patients. He said he was taking the drug as a preventative measure and continued to test negative for the coronavirus. Trump stated, quote, all I can tell you is so far I seem to be OK. He went on saying, quote, I think it's good. I've heard a lot of good stories. When asked about specific evidence that the drug was safe, Trump noted, here, here we go. You ready? Here's my evidence. I get a lot of positive calls about it, unquote. I love that one. <laughs> Trump did not seem troubled by the Veterans Affairs study, which found that 20% of patients who received uh, see the, the medicine died. Phil, I sent you a message, message the other day noting that one of the side effects of the medication is, quote, feeling that other people are controlling your thoughts and actions. <laughs> you really can't make this stuff up. So I ask you, Phil, this is perfectly good and a reasonable decision by the president, right? It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> kind of such a leading no. question. <laughs> I know. I know. That's, that's a fun one. <laughs> you know, what's interesting about it is if he were a private citizen doing this, then like, you know, he can decide what he wants to do in terms of what medicine he takes. But the, the, when you put him up on a podium talking about this, it, it brings in different implications. I mean, ultimately, he's he is saying he's either taking a medicine that medical experts have said is dangerous and ineffective in this particular circumstance. Despite all those warnings, he's, he's doing it, bragging about it and encouraging other people to do it, or he's lying about it. I don't know which of those is more (laughs) disturbing for the president of the United States to get up and do to say, to take basically to, to push a drug that is ineffective and dangerous or to, for some bizarre reason, lie about taking a drug that is dangerous and ineffective. I, so, so in that level, nothing about this is is good or right. But you know, it's it's also seems very Trumpian. So, mm-hmm. but, but you're taking it, right? I have Bill? been for months. Yeah. Okay, and, and, but you knew that because you're in my brain telling me to do it. <laughs> Nick, is this a sensible choice? Um. So here's the, I, I, this is one of those situations where I don't think that he's lying. And just because uh, there was a statement by, I think, the doctor who's administering it saying that he consulted with the president. He consulted with a bunch of other medical professionals, uh, experts in the field uh, based on the president's condition and everything else. It, this is done in low dosage on a, a regular treatment under medical supervision, which realistically, there are lots of doctors in the country that are doing the exact same thing under the right circumstances. And there is evidence of this, depending, it's not obviously 100% um, that this is effective in a lot of situations. But this is all this is the 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 discussion that we constantly have of the lowest common denominator. Do you want this information out there for the idiots who are, again, going to go drink fish tank cleaner or something like that, because it, you know, has part of the word in there. Um you know, I, I don't really know. Like, this is the fact that we don't have an effective treatment at this point and we're still going back and forth on this same fucking topic is is insane to me. We're we're effectively three to four months in uh, and there's been no broad treatment presented 
either globally or domestically that has proven exceptionally effective. Um, I, realistically, if if it's if this is done under medical supervision under the best possible circumstances, and you're you know at least you appear to not be susceptible to the side effects, or there is no other option at this point. I, like, I don't really give a shit. Just take it. If we're going to talk about the idiots constantly, we're never going to get through this. That's my take on it. Well done, Nick. Well done. <laughs> Tom, Tom, the president that? should shut his mouth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is this one is just it's just so strange. And I, I can't figure out what the motivation is. Is it? Is it a distraction, right? There are things that he doesn't want to be talking about. So does this move the conversation in another direction, which Trump is pretty good at? It's not a safe thing, right? I mean, again, what I loved was that Fox News, like a number of shows on Fox News suddenly were saying to their viewers, don't take this, don't take this. And it upset Trump where he's tweeting and now saying that Fox News is a bunch of garbage, right? I mean, this is this is where we're at, where... Uh, the president is saying, take this medication. And Fox News is saying, you could die from taking this medication. But again, like, if it's, is it them taking it or is it someone giving it to them in a medical setting where they've been, you know, screened for, for whatever? Well, I don't, you know, yeah. uh, again, it, it's no, you absolutely should not take it. The fact that you could even get your hands on it is a fucking problem. Well, and again, there are reasons there are there are it's approved medication for lupus and others. Right. right? And, and there may be certain circumstances where it's useful here. I don't feel comforted that the president is just taking it as a preventative measure. Right. This doesn't seem I mean, it, fully it gets back to the liability thing that we talked about before. Right. If I am some sort of famous figure and I get up on TV and say, take cyanide, it helps your skin and a whole bunch of people do it and die then I face all sorts of legal consequences for that. Right. Tom? <laughs> I would assume I, I feel like I probably shouldn't do that, but uh, there's, a couple of lawyers, there's a couple of lawyers with a billboard on the, on the skyway that would say, yes, we'll represent you. I'm not sure they're going to win. They might get nuisance value. I, I think Nick's onto something really important here. And it is, you don't just walk into a CVS and say, give me this drug. You have to have a doctor prescribe it. The FDA has to, uh, or the FDA has to say we're going to make this non-prescription. I've always been of the view that uh, preventing people from taking things that have potential value uh, is an infringement on their liberty. And I, I don't want to over-serious this one, but you know the FDA in our country moves so much slower than drug approval in other countries that people with conditions that could have been treated aren't because we're waiting on not just safety, but efficacy. Um, do I think this works? I don't know. Do I care if he's taking it? To be frank, I don't. Uh, well, I, because I can't, if, if he got on television, let's just say this, if he, if he went on television in one of his press conferences and said, I've heard that taking massive doses of acetaminophen every day, Tylenol, right. uh, has uh, protective qualities. Well, now I'm really worried because then people do go to CVS. They could yeah. buy it, to go back to Nick's point, the idiots, and, and start swallowing it by the handful. But we've got regulations, get ready for it. Is everybody sitting down? Appropriate regulations <laughs> to prevent people from getting their hands on a drug that could be dangerous if it's misused. 
We, we should at least stop, though, and recognize that we are at a point in history or in society where we are saying that people who listen to the president and do what he says fall into a category of people we would call idiots. Right? The government I mean, isn't going to save you, Phil. Like Just the idea that it. an average person should. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that, that's that's the, the idea that you should just ignore the president and what he says. And if you don't, you're an idiot. That says something about where we are, though, too. Deeply problematic. Deeply problematic. <laughs> it's an assault right. on institutions and norms as it's deeply right. problematic. Yes. All right, let's jump to our final topic. Nick, I just texted you the audio for this one. Oh, thank God. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So the Supreme Court uh, made history at the beginning of this month when it conducted its first ever oral argument by telephone with the public able to listen in real time. For the most part, things went smoothly, except when toward the end of the proceedings out of nowhere, there emerged a distinct sound of a toilet flushing. Nick, are you ready? Nope. (laughs) Pretty soon we're going to go to the tape and listen to the evidence. All right, hold on. It won't let me pause it. All right. Well, hold, 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 hold. Here we go. And what the FCC has said is that when the subject matter of the call ranges to the topics, then the call is transformed. And it's, it's yes. a call that would have been allowed and it's no longer allowed. And so I think that I think that so the, I the, the technical issue. Is All, right. Here. Me. I All right. We heard the toilet flushing. So um, <laughs> this is a perplexing whodunit. Did, did, did Ginsburg have to tinkle after one too many glasses of wine? Or was it Kavanaugh after chugging a few beers? One commentator noted that uh, the flush was the most <laughs> insightful comment Alito had made in years. <laughs> Now, on one level, this is wonderful and a perfect example of the unprecedented times we find ourselves in. Yet I also found myself wondering what Chief Justice John Roberts thought about the incident. For years, Roberts has uh, resisted the efforts to allow video in the court. He has said, quote, the courtroom is a very special place and maybe part of what makes it special is that you don't see it on television. As we watch our politicians debase themselves and their institutions on a daily basis, Roberts has tried to keep his court above it all. And in some ways, the legitimacy of the Supreme Court depends on this. We often talk about the importance of norms. At the end of the day, the Supreme Court derives its legitimacy from the fact that we all believe it deserves that power. So, Tom, a two-part question. What is your guess for who flushed the toilet? And will this lavatory lapse permanently undermine the legitimacy of your court? I love alliteration and lavatory laps is let me just say, as uh, I'm going to admit culpability for the dog barking in the background, having had assurances from my lovely bride that the mutt wouldn't even be in the house and therefore couldn't bark. I recognize the difficulties of totally uh, uh, broadcasting with total purity. But here's the important point. It grieves me that you would think, instantaneously make an assumption that it was a member of my beloved court that flushed the toilet. That's a good point. As opposed to the lawyer. (laughs) Now, listen, this was some horrible FCC case, going back to things people don't care about, this one, where he's making a point no one wants to listen to. And I'm thinking it might have been his kid flushing the toilet behind him (laughs) or his associate or paralegal at the law firm. None of my court would do a thing like this. (laughs) Now, I just have one final thing to say about this. We've talked to the shut your mouth if you're a client, shut your mouth if you're a lawyer. I think we have a third uh, uh, iteration of that, and it is put the seat down. (laughs) There's the title. There's your title, Nick. Seat down. Oh, you know, I, I, I honestly like my, my reaction to this. This was there was nothing. I mean, I thought this was again, I thought it was cute. I thought it was really uh, sort of human that this happened. 
And I also appreciate that as, as awful as the pandemic is, that it's it's causing the court to to rethink how it presents itself. And I think it needs to be very careful about that. But I'm, I'm glad that they're doing real in time where you can listen. I mean, so as you you can uh, you you've been to the court, you can uh, testify in front of the court. Um, I mean, maybe talk to the listeners a bit about that experience and the pomp and circumstance of the court and why yeah. this has always been so important. We should start by saying that the court has resisted um, television cameras, and uh, I think we'll continue to resist those forever. And at least three of the justices have said that's part of what has ruined Congress. That is C-SPAN giving these guys and gals um, a podium uh, on which to try and draw attention to themselves. So here's an institution that has no ability to enforce its rules. None, they don't have an army. They don't have a police force. None. It's only their credibility. Um, and they rely very heavily on tradition and, as you say, pomp and circumstance. Uh, so I'm of the view, <laughs> I'm a traditionalist, I would not have made these hearings live. Um, I'm, I'm very much satisfied with the idea that they have audio recording. They make it available on the OEA site very shortly thereafter. They don't edit it. Or be careful and say that, but uh, it doesn't put people in a position where they feel like they're performing for third parties. And uh, in my view, that's a really solid rule. Mm-hmm. Congress is probably different. These are politicians who have a different sort of role in our lives. I don't think that we should televise anything that happens in court ever at any level, to be honest. Phil Tom has just made a really powerful normative argument, and I'm just going to I'm going to soak that up for a while. <laughs> Yeah, I can't I can't help but think about, you know, we talk about norms and institute, you know, I like institutions, but it it feels like in American politics, in politics anywhere, it is the characteristics of the institution that make it, you know, work or powerful. It's the Supreme Court, it is Congress, it's the Constitution, all of that. Mm -hmm. The reason we put all that in place is because people are flawed. And it feels Mm -hmm. like what we've started to do is shift the focus from the institutions to the people. If we think of the Supreme Court as you know, Justice Ginsburg and Justice Alito and all of that, mm-hmm. then they're humans, right? They're people. Yeah. They go to the bathroom, right? They have they're 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 flawed. I'm pretty but- sure Justice Ginsburg is a superhero. I just want to interfere. <laughs> the rest of them are human beings. But I, I think about that in Congress too. Whereas we focus more and more on the people and less on the the sort of institution and what it does. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't hold people accountable for the roles they play in those institutions. But if we rely less on the institutions and rely more on the individuals, then we, we seems like we get ourselves into all sorts of trouble. And, mm-hmm. and there's this tendency, I think because we want the institutions to work and in this day and age, we associate certain people with the institution. There is this desire to lift those people up as in some way, superhuman, right. As opposed mm-hmm. to realizing that they are just people, right. They have their flaws yeah. and their problems as well. They're probably, yeah, I feel like there was something good in there as I talked. <laughs> oh, no, there were a lot of good things in there. The last time I was to the court, um, members of the Supreme Court bar get into a different line to go in. And one of the people that was going to argue a case was in the bathroom vomiting. So nervous was he about this. I'm telling you, when you stand up in front of that court uh, and, and you see it's all nine of them, there are no rules relative to what they can ask you. Uh, they can interrupt you. It is a pressure situation. I'm not sure there's any equivalent to it. And I say that to say, 
it's not just the justices that are under the spotlight when they put these things on TV. It's the lawyers. And more importantly, the clients they represent who may not be as well represented when somebody worries not just about the nine justices and the press that's sitting on one side or the other or a full courtroom, but a, a television audience, how many people would turn in uh, and would tune in for a Supreme Court argument on abortion? Mm-hmm. Millions, I, I think, would. Uh, some lawyers would rise to that occasion and some may not. And the lawyers in these cases aren't always there uh, by choice. You know, they might be a state attorney general. They have to be the one who does it, whether they can perform well in front of the camera or not. So I, mean, I know I keep sort of pressing this point about uh, don't let's erode credibility here. Uh, more importantly, don't let's erode the capacity of the court and the, the advocates in it to represent and then make judgments about their clients, mm-hmm. which Bill did when he suggested that it was one of my beloved courts flushing a <laughs> toilet during oral <laughs> argument. Um, I, I, I was coming into this kind of a, a very different perspective, but, but before that, I'll, I, I want to uh, kind of counter a point. I don't necessarily agree with uh, Justice Ginsburg being a superhero as much as kind of a weekend at Bernie's marionette kind of situation <laughs> at this point, but you know, to each his own. Um <laughs> Um, the best you can. <laughs> um, so I, I mean, originally I was, I was kind of coming to this argument, uh, having talked to, to several, uh, people from different backgrounds, uh, and a lot of them not knowing that these oral arguments were even put out there to the public, let alone that this one was going to be, was going to be live that they could actually listen to. And they, thought that that was a really interesting thing. And they found it really informative and, and fascinating to see how the process worked and what the arguments were. And to, for lack of a better term, hear, hear the argument from the horse's mouth. Um, or I think that the vast, vast majority of Americans kind of get these, these tidbits from corporate media and everything kind of gets a, somewhat distorted in terms of, of the arguments being made. Mm-hmm. So from that perspective, I think that there's a segment of society that really could kind of get behind this, um, that this is, uh, again, a, a unvarnished, unfiltered um, version of a story that that obviously is being told it needs to be told and interpreted not by a news network or a pundit, but can be interpreted by them and obviously the, the justices themselves and the arguments being made. Um, after listening to, to you... Um, I'm I'm less inclined to agree with that just in the sense that there is significant, obviously, political uh, polarization in the country. And the thought of this being out there on a regular basis would seriously deteriorate, uh, deteriorate. I feel like the uh, again, for lack of a better term, the the pomp and circumstance and, and uh, regality of, of that institution. Um, and if people don't want to tune into that, well, you don't have to, it's, it's again, the lowest common denominator kind of thing, where if you're, if you're going to be one of those people, then you don't have to listen to it. And the people who will, will find a way to find those arguments. Um, I'm not exceptionally optimistic that people will find those arguments unfiltered and unvarnished, but you know, it's out there. <laughs> you know, what? I, I, I have made matter. the case. Oh, sorry, Bill. 
Yeah. Just uh, real quick, transparency matters, but how you're transparent also matters, right? And yeah. I mean, you could one could argue that Donald Trump is the most transparent president in the world, but I don't know if that's necessarily effective, right? I mean, the way the court does it, if, if you, I don't know, I just, I just find I, I'm, I'm in agreement with both of you and Tom, and that that uh, I like the fact that there is not television. I like the fact that we have to go in. I like the fact that we can do this here and not have to do it on Twitter. I, I, I just, yeah, I think there's value in that. I've made the case in my classes for 30 plus years uh, that you will trust the court more when you hear it than when you read about it. That is when you hear nine brilliant people, and they are, um, all nine of them. uh, I want to come back to Clarence Thomas in one second. Uh, When you hear these arguments and you, you understand the depth of understanding, the breadth of knowledge, the gravity of the situation, uh, the capacity to advocate for people, uh, anybody that leaves that leaves it respecting the institution, uh, to use your word. People say that about this podcast a lot. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Interestingly yeah. enough, the, the, the format that they've adopted is that uh, the chief begins and then the most senior justice follows. Well, for people that have listened, they'll know, uh, listen to the podcast because I've said it, but uh, might know otherwise, Clarence Thomas doesn't ask questions of advocates during oral argument live in court. He's always said the two reasons for that are that they're at their best on paper, where they don't have to worry about nervousness and that sort of thing. So he could decide most cases on the brief. And second, he thinks they're impolite to each other. That is, he doesn't love the idea of justices interrupting and cutting in and and that sort of thing. But he's the most senior justice on the court. So he comes next. So you've heard him ask questions in all of the cases that have been framed this way. And uh, they have been wonderful. So I just want to put to bed, I always save one uh, swear word per uh, all those assholes who think Clarence Thomas is stupid and that's why he doesn't ask ask questions. False. (laughs) False. That was a good use of your one. Yeah, that was my one. (laughs) that's a good way to wrap up nick oh my god well yeah this was this was great um this was really good i i I feel yeah i feel better yeah (laughs) the question is whether phil feels better coming into it uh headachy and and drinking ice water what's what's the verdict a a beer would have been nice but i i'm doing all right (laughs) well on that note uh yeah we'll we'll keep the uh the outro a little bit uh briefer than the normal i'll try and do that more often um, Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, follow us on there. Uh, live shows every Wednesday around 4.30 Central on Facebook and YouTube. Uh, the podcast, iTunes, Spotify, uh, lots of different podcasting channels. So look for that. Um, share us. We always appreciate the support. Uh, Untapped, uh, download it on iOS or Android to find out the uh, beers that we have on the podcast. Uh, our merch line you can find on Untapped. You'll find a direct link on uh, our social channels. So definitely check that out as well. Um, Anything else that I missed? This is fantastic. Awesome. Nick. Tom, thank you as always for joining us. A pleasure. And then, uh, yeah, I guess we'll talk to you guys next week. Cheers. 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 <laughs>